0: One of my greatest memories is the first time I flew a single-seat aircraft. Flying a 20-tonne fighter jet uh, with just you in it, that's the dream, that's everything you ever wanted to do. That's the Spitfire, the Hurricane, the P-51, the P-38, the you and the machine, the man-machine interface in an an aircraft that can accelerate while pointing straight up at the sky. The real feeling of that is, is like watching the pod racing in Star Wars, just like you get push back in the sea, the jet accelerates away, you know, you're just, you're raining thunder and noise down on the villages below you. And then uh, you come back and, and land the aircraft and it's all over. And you're like, you know, I just took off an F-18 Hornet, flew it around all by myself and got it back on the ground no one got hurt. And that's my, I did it. I just achieved my life dream right there. Wow. That's a small moment. Most of the time, it's bloody hard. <laughs> Welcome
1: to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selik. And I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Christian Bakusis, better known as Boo, and dive deep into hat numbers one and four, the soul and the entrepreneur as we jump in a fighter jet, strap on and claim air superiority as entrepreneurs. Selected for pilot training in the Royal Australian Air Force at the age of 18, Boo was one of only 400 to graduate as a fighter pilot in a period of 40 years. If fighter pilot was insufficient to add to his resume, Boo successfully ran four companies and now travels the world as a professional speaker, realizing he can take the insights and ahas From the $15 million training program Boo participated in as a fighter pilot, he is now equipping entrepreneurs with the skills to achieve business success, the fighter pilot way. You think a roller coaster is scary? Try to barrel roll your way on the entrepreneurial journey. Talk about the ups and downs in the fourth dimension. So let's do as Buddha said, if you want to fly, give up everything that weighs you down and let's welcome Boo to the seven hats. Christian, or Boo, as you like to be called, welcome to The Seven Hats.
0: Thanks for having me, man. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm loving uh, what you do. I like the, the concept of The Seven Hats, and I'm all about uh, bringing simplicity to, to complex environments. And yeah, obviously, as an entrepreneur, it's one of the most complex things you can do. So. I'm all in. I'm bought into our conversation today, mate. (laughs)
1: Uh, That makes me so happy. You know, I'm really happy to be able to introduce you to my audience, you know, a group of ambitious entrepreneurs. We call them the seven hatters. We bring on this show people who have wisdom, where we can benefit from. And boy, do you fit that description. You know, two weeks ago, I had an ex-US Navy SEAL on the show, William Brennan. What I noticed was the mental sharpness and toughness developed in their training was extraordinarily useful in the world of the entrepreneur. And from my research, this appears to be the rule, not the exception. So you're a person who has been able to develop amazing skills, overcome huge challenges, and even experience a bit of luck along the path to tremendous success. And we're going to touch upon all of those things today. But we'd also like to know a little bit about who Boo is. So let's start at the beginning. Um, where were you born and how was your childhood?
0: Yeah, look, I, I had your standard uh, middle-class upbringing, really, nothing too, too exciting or too dramatic. Uh, we, we had a fairly adventurous life. We, we were into boating and yeah, not luxury yachts, obviously, but small boats that you could spend the night on. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time building great relationships within that boaty community. Uh, and then, yeah, just fairly standard, went through a, a, a normal school, wasn't particularly academic. I think one of the unique things about my primary school, though, which is, I guess, elementary uh, in the US, I had a teacher for a few years who focused on lateral thinking as opposed to reading, writing, arithmetic. And every, every week we'd be given this lateral thinking exercise that we had to kind of work our way through. Mrs. King was her name. I think with that, in, in hindsight, uh, having a teacher that was more focused on life skills rather than you know, the detail was was really useful because it just got you to understand that learning could be fun, like problem solving and you had elements of mathematics, English, everything in solving these problems you'd pose every every week. But because it was like a, a who done it or some investigative piece, you, you, you created that problem solving set. And I think one of the you know, major skill sets for me is I think I'm a very good problem solver. <laughs> probably too much so when you when you look at bringing that back into an, your uh, relationships. So, so that was a fairly, that was probably the only nuance at that age. I love sport. I lived in a, in a town in, in Australia uh, called Brisbane. Uh, it's our third largest city in Australia. When I was there, it was a bit of a rural gateway. So it was a gateway into a, what, one of our big states, which would probably be a bit like Texas, just lots of cattle country. And so we, we, everyone wore boots and jeans and, and uh, denim shirts and that sort of lifestyle. So it was, it was quite uh, an outdoorsy environment. It, that city's changed a lot now. It's quite cosmopolitan. Uh, so, so that was uh, my background and my mum's side of the family. She had six brothers and sisters. I had 25 cousins and they lived, you know, all through the country and we spent holidays out flying, you know, in, in my uncle's helicopter, mustering cattle and doing all those sort of things. So I had a pretty adventurous lifestyle as a kid and I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed getting out and, and trying uh, new things. A high school for me, w- again, very sport orientated academically, not, uh, not very good at all, um, I, I did my last year of high school, I did it again and, and didn't do much better the second time. And I've always struggled with structured learning. You know, I'm not very good at memorization, behavioural style learning environments. Uh, so, yeah, but, but I loved reading. I, you know, I've read thousands of books when I was a kid uh, and, and a teenager. I was always fascinated by empires and cultures and civilizations. So, wow. you know, reading every, every cycle of... Uh, from the, the Romans, Mesopotamians, Persians, uh, through to, to the Ottoman Empires, uh, Alexander the Great, the Roman Empires, yeah, all I've always fascinated by this cycle of of civilizations and, and empire, and I and I really enjoyed reading about the leaders. You know, what what was the nuance of of the leaders? And I wasn't very good. I never really read the books that were, I guess, historically. They were always like a like a like a novel on the time. So there was a storytelling component to it as well. But I always found it interesting because when you'd read a novel, you go, well, did that really happen? And that would motivate me to go and read you know, history books and, and deconstruct it a little bit. So I spent a lot of time on that. I, I, I loved aviation. So therefore, I read everything I could consume in, in aviation. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, one of the big moments around the age of six, I went to an air show and I it was the first time I really saw these fighter jets, you know, the noise, the speed, the jet fuel. And I think I had a visceral experience there where, where it was all so overwhelming and, and so cool. Uh, talking to the pilots, the colour, everything about it was just like, this is cool. And I think it, it highlighted to me in life how important attaching experiences are to learning. Uh, where Learning out of a book, you'll never, you'll never quite You'll never smell jet fuel when you read about the, the iteration of fighter jets, right? So that, that imprinted to me and drove all of my behaviours and activity, and, and I think one of the things that got me through school, even because I was poor academically, was because I had to. I had to get a certain level of marks, and, and I got the, the minimum, really, that I needed to, to tick the box, which was, yeah, you know, a B-plus average was what you kind of needed uh, to, be, to be in the, in the Air Force. I certainly would have had the capability to be an a student but i just did not have the ability to apply myself uh, i just was found study really really hard yeah so all through that and i, I applied to be a fighter pilot whilst i was at school uh, i got knocked back the first time uh, for my academics i went back to school improved my academics got accepted the next time so by the time i was 19 i i was in in the service and starting my officer training before becoming a pilot that was pretty cool and i think You talk about luck. I think at that time, I was very lucky. The selection officer on the final interviews, or he kind of oversee the recruitment of all pilots around the country. He did a little bit of experiment where he was looking at at, uh, recruiting much younger pilots. There was me and and five other pilots that were all 19. All of us successfully made it to be fighter pilots out of a group of 35. North was his name. Very forward-looking in his approach. He's one of those guys that recruited determination and recruited purpose. He didn't care about everything else. He's sort of like, we can mold these people into who they need to be. And again, it was a huge lesson for me, which was bringing purposeful people on with motivation is what you want. All your experience to date is you being very good at what was important yesterday. I, I think there that when, when you look at putting an entrepreneurial mindset and something that I've taken forward after being a fighter pilot and 15 years um, as a business owner and entrepreneur is always recruit and always look for that energy and alignment um, with purpose. Yeah. So that, that pretty much is the, the, the long story, mate. Wow.
1: Well, that's, that's an amazing story. We're going to, we're going to dig deep into that one, but isn't it amazing? You know that everybody's got that one teacher that makes such an impact in their lives and any teacher that's listening, don't underestimate what you do on a daily basis because that one life that you touch where without her teaching you the skill sets, maybe you wouldn't have made it into the Air Force, right? Because ultimately you weren't that great of a student, but you loved learning and she taught you the skill sets that are so important, you know, to work through as a, as a pilot, Right.
0: Yeah, and the, the headmaster I had at my high school was also very different in that he was very much about everything that happens in your life and how you behave, you're ultimately accountable. It's not the school's job to to hold you accountable. Some kids and some students obviously took advantage of that and and he was viewed as a, as a bit of a maverick headmaster and, and he, his tenure was relatively short, I think. But when you look at the students that he churned out during his tenure – now, in their 40s, they are wall to wall entrepreneurs, doctors. They're all thriving in their music, famous musicians. They were academically one of the poorest years to go through the school. But in life, some of the most, probably the most successful year groups to go through that particular school.
1: Wow. Well, you know, I was arguing with William because he said anyone can make it as a Navy SEAL as long as they want it bad enough. Is it true for a fighter pilot? Can anyone make it to become a fighter pilot as long as they want it bad enough?
0: Yeah, totally. 100%. And one of the things that I always get, you know, disappointed by is when I meet young kids or I talk at universities telling my story, which is of a very average Joe uh, getting into the cockpit. They're like, wow, I never even thought of being a fighter pilot because I just didn't think I'd be good enough. Like there's this unfortunate mystique about it that you've got to be this elite, you know, hyper athlete Tom Brady of flying. And you don't. No fighter pilots are there are there's no super talented ducks of school high performing athletes fighter pilots are kind of just average at everything there's no no major weakness no major strength and then they mold that into into a fighter pilot and there's it's very rare to find a fighter pilot that didn't want to be a fighter pilot their whole life and and it's very true and and that's the same in life anyone can be anything like it's just your it's all your choice you can choose not to be an entrepreneur or you can choose to be one but just be aware, whatever journey you take is going to be hard work. And, and I think one of the areas where military guys don't transfer into the civilian world very well, and it's well-documented, that transitioning veterans struggle, right, is because you just never get the intensity. The intensity of the military is, is just doesn't exist anywhere else. And you don't have the, the, the trust and, and the bonds. And I've been working in high performance coaching now for six years, and I've sort of abandoned it and moved into a new uh, genre of performance, which I call deep performance. And it resonates with, with where you're coming from is, is when, you, when you look at people who are genuinely successful, and I don't mean you know people that become the CEO of a business, even though for them that's successful, or someone that has a Grant Cardoni or a Ferraris and private jets, like people that live to their, fulfill, live to their personal fulfillment, that's success. And, and when you look at that, and again, you know, Serena Williams, Oprah Winfrey, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal. When you look at these best of the best, they're actually very. What they're actually very good at is just doing the basics. They uh, they show up all the time, and they're they're exceptional at squeezing the most out of uh, i've got I call it the tp time trust and, and purpose they've got amazing purpose they love the game they know it's hard but they love it they love the industry that they're in they love what they do every day and that's critical if you want to be personally fulfilled they're trusted everything they do and they say everything they say they do so people trust who they are and they invest in that trust right they feel safe and they squeeze the most out of every hour of every day like they they opt, they create time we, we can't create time in terms of add more seconds and hours in a day, but the way we create it is to optimize each one of those. because if you if you sit very quietly and watch the clock for an hour, man, that is a long time. It's just we cram that hour full of garbage, uh, which means we feel like we have no time, but it's there. Uh, so for me, deep performance, the best of the best, they're able to, to optimize those three elements, create more time, build trust, and deliver on purpose.
1: I love what you said in terms of going back to the basics, doing it extremely well and doing it consistently to build up that muscle. And then you can work on the nuances. Because I think really kind of that's what, if you think about Michael Jordan, right? When he was cut from his basketball team, the coach told him, if you come in every, every morning at 6 a.m. and you practice with me every single day and you work on the basics, you're going to succeed. And that's Michael Jordan. He was an extraordinary. He was just disciplined. And I think that, that's what you're saying, if, I, if I'm correctly Absolutely. assessing it's, what you're
0: saying. Discipline is habits. Discipline is having a simple plan, not trying to do too much. A big part of discipline is saying no. You know, it's, it's saying yes to practice and no to going to Burger King. Every moment is a, is a decision. And no human being is capable of making all the best decisions every day. That's impossible, right? We, we, we can't do that. We we need to, we all have urges. We all need to fulfill uh, other elements of our life. That's, that's fine. So what we really want to try and do is, is if there's a bucket of desires and needs, if we can put 70% of those into our business rather than 10% when we you know, work for someone or we're unfulfilled, then that means you know, a, lot, a lot of those needs are being met at the same time as being commercially sound and and creating a a sustainable existence for ourselves and doing something purposeful and fulfilling.
1: Speaking of purposeful, fulfilling and discipline, can you summarize what training is like to be a fighter pilot? Just because I'm sure so many are interested and curious, what do you have to go through and how difficult it is?
0: Super hard. Like it's For me, I was very lucky to have the gift of purpose after that air show, right? So I never had to worry about what I'm going to do or... I just knew what I had to do and I just had to follow all the steps. The steps aren't clear. So what I learned is, well, if you don't know, go somewhere. When, you, when I was 12, I was always out visiting the squadrons, talking to pilots, constantly asking people, what questions do they need, what's important, what's, you know, so by the time I was interviewed and went through the process, I kind of knew just about everything about the Air Force and how it worked. In, in Australia, you're allowed to make an application and get all your service records, which is every piece of paperwork, assessment, every written word, every document. It's like thousands of documents. And overwhelmingly, I, I still didn't rank that well in academics, right, in my selection. But overwhelming, it was like, you know, a mature, determined and motivated young man. And the maturity was because I could have grown up conversations about the industry that I wanted, I wanted to go in. So now when you, when you train as a fighter pilot, it's like being at university, but you're doing your three or four year degree In nine months someone's following you around all the time watching how you drink in the bar watching how you eat watching over your shoulder while you do your exams it's sort of 400 individually assessed one-on-one missions where you it's a three-strike policy so you fail two on the third one you're you're out. For a lot of people, it's a two-strike policy, you're gone after the second one. Every day they push you to your limit, they see where that is, you make a mistake, they come back. They deliberately push you into the, into the era to make you fail. The mission, but to see you make the decision which is, this is now unsafe. I'm going to say no. And for me, learning that skill like this, you're in a moment here where you know you can't complete the mission and that your success or failure is based on that, but you know it's, you're about to get you're in, into an unsafe environment. You've got to make the safe decision. So in that environment, there are no good decisions. It's only you know you're not going to get the top mark because you're not going to do the mission. You know you're going to get an okay mark because you made the safe decision. A lot of people don't make that decision. They push the high risk and they fail. And again, that for me is a, is a great lesson in life and risk management. It's like you're not always going to have a good and a bad decision. Sometimes you're going to have great decisions and okay, two good decisions to make. You're going to have too much opportunity. And other times you're going to have two bad decisions. So you, you just learn that that's, a, that's the journey. And, and once that decision's made, it's gone, move forward. Uh, so so fighter pilot thinking, and it's what I do a lot, I do a lot of coaching, but I don't coach individuals, I only coach teams. And a lot of that is is about purposefully saying no and purposefully moving forward. It's not about blindly moving forward and, and just being a train wreck. And it's not about analysing the past. It's this very fine balance between where we're going, where we've been, and making decisions today to fulfil that vision off in the distance, fulfil that purposeful outcome.
1: So when you, when you get into training, how long before they uh, let you fly a plane? Can you come in with never flying?
0: You can come in if you, if you never fly. But, I mean, I started flying when I was 14 because I just loved it. Oh, you, wow. You know, so it's, again, it's not, the Air Force doesn't say, hey, you're a pilot, this is going to be easy. You say, hey, I want to be a pilot, and you've already been doing it for three years. They kind of say, well and I self-funded it. I worked two jobs. I worked after school. I studied after school. I didn't do academically well at school, but I was you know, an 18-hour day kind of guy doing stuff, reading. I didn't want to read history books about Vietnam. I read stories about Vietnam. Yeah. So I learned about it, but it wasn't the way that school wanted me to learn about it. But if I had a conversation with a history teacher, I would be more across the detail and nuance of the war than, the, than reading it out of a history book. So I'm a very, I was a very social learner. I learned from mimicking and observing and great mentors and, and storytelling, right? So you join up, you do three uh, in Australia, like in the US, right? You've got to go to college or an academy. It's like a three, four year journey before you even get in a cockpit. In Australia, it's three months of, of officer training, one month of survival training, three months of ground school and boom, you're flying. So it's, Six months and then, yeah, you're straight into the cockpit and you are training for uh, probably two and a half years. Then you're in the squadron. Then you've got another year of training. So by about three and a half year point, you're safe, dangerous to, to actually lead a formation. And it's, it's intense. It's like six hours a day. You live, you know, you live in the barracks. You're, you're all in. You're fully immersed in that environment. Work hard, play hard. But it's also your dream. Like every day you're rolling the dice on your life dream everything you've, you've ever wanted. That's the pressure of, of failure is like air. So I think we, what you learn and what's really cool in that environment is, you know, you manage pressure really well. You manage disrupted environments. You learn the difference between investing in the things you can control, so you can control the airplane and you have to work around the things you can't, but it's no excuse. You can't just fly into a thunderstorm and into, into hail and destroy the aircraft, right? You gotta, it's in the way. It's not ideal. It's not meant to be there but you've got to adapt. You've got to, be the, you've got to be the water in the river, not the rock. Just move around it, but do it purposefully and know that when I go here, I'm going to end up there. So you're always, you're always in the moment looking forward, in the moment looking forward the whole time. And that's, I think for entrepreneurs, you yeah, a really important skill. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are way too far off in the future and, and way too much on the big idea and not, not focused on the three, 400 things you've got to do as an entrepreneur to get your systems in place, to understand, you know, to build trust with people to transact with you, all of that is you at the start. And if you don't have all those systems and and relationships and trust, you'll never scale. You're going from trusting Boo to trusting a brand, and that's a that's a journey right there.
1: How's it like? What's the feeling like to fly a fighter jet for the first time?
0: Yeah, that's like for me. My one of my greatest memories is the first time I flew a single seat aircraft by myself, well, obviously by myself, because I'm the only one in it. But flying a flying a twenty ton fighter jet uh, with just you in it, that's that's the dream. That's everything you ever wanted to do. That's the Spitfire, the Hurricane, the P-51, the P-38, the you and the machine, the man-machine interface uh, in, an, in an aircraft that can accelerate while pointing straight up at the sky. And the day I flew, the weather was quite bad, and um, there was a lot of thunderstorms, and they, they pushed and got me airborne. And I hadn't, lo- yeah, I knew how to fly in flying cloud in different aeroplanes, and I was. I was allowed to fly in cloud, but not in this one, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was flying in, a, in, a, in this environment of massive thunderstorms and lightning, and I managed to fly around. You know, you know a thunderstorms are big vertical cloud, basically. And, you know, you're flying this jet aircraft and doing barrel rolls and, and hugging the, the cloud that, that is around these, um, not, not the thunderstorms, not allowed to fly near them, but the other clouds that are like thunderstorms. Yeah, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful day up there around the cells, and then found a hole in the cloud that was cloudy and Dark and you—you know, you, you have to like slow the aircraft as slow as you can, then slam the afterburners to learn what it's like to get that acceleration. And for, for anyone I, I, you know, I talk to, it's like the real feeling of that is, is like watching the pod racing in Star Wars. It's just like you get pushed back in the seat, the jet accelerates away. You know, you're just you're raining thunder and noise down on the villages below you, and then uh, you come back and, and land the aircraft, and it's all over, and you're like. You know, I just took off an F-18 Hornet, flew it around all by myself and got it back on the ground. No one got hurt. And that's my, I did it. I just achieved my life dream right there. Yeah. But you know, that that's a small moment. Most of the time, it's bloody hard. It's a lot of work. And a lot of
1: yeah. It's like, it's like entrepreneur, it's like entrepreneurship, you know, 15%, 10, 15% is fun and the rest is grind. Do you, do you get, yeah. do you get turbulence with a fighter jet? Like you would with a commercial airline or how does that work?
0: Well, you do, it's just different. It's you're, you, you. you can't go through turbulence in a jet super fast. Cause it's, it's very, very uncomfortable. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the same. It's the same, but different. It's not, um, it's not like that kind of flappy bobby stuff you get in an, in an airliner. It's like, it's, it's like, bam, it slams or you. you smash your head into the cockpit uh, win, uh, window, uh, the cockpit canopy, like it's, yeah. Turbulence in you know, a fighter jet's intense.
1: Crazy. So you you started with thirty eight, only five completed. Those are pretty low odds. How did you deal with that stress? How did you how did you push through? And is there also like a hell week like the seals have for you guys?
0: No, we don't we don't do any of that. They, I mean, there's a different like uh, seals. We our special air service here theirs is a very physical type of type of assessment because they're out you know in the boondocks carrying their bags around they are putting the body under immense physical, physical pressure. Uh, and they're, you know, to put, put a blunt, they're up close with the killing, right? Our environment's very sterile. Our environment is layering in physical intensity when you pull high G and mental intensity, like it's incredible. There's a lot going on when you add a third dimension into your problem solving. We don't have that intense period, which is like a, you know, like a six month, three to six month program to becomes Ours is a three-year. Ours is just sustained, a sustained intensity and pressure. It's, there's a nuance there in, in what the, the product is you're, you're developing. Uh, but we've had uh, fighter pilots move into the, we've had three or four fighter pilots in Australia move across into the special forces. There's a lot of commonality there. We're just, like, we just like five-star hotels not living in our own feces. Yeah. There's that, that's, that's, that's the choice we make.
1: <laughs> that's funny. Uh, how did you deal with the stress of knowing that only so few actually make it till the end?
0: Uh, I wasn't bothered because I just knew it, I'd be one. I just knew that was my purpose. You knew it. Um, no, no question about it. I knew it. it. No question.
1: Yeah, I think that's the reason. Quick question for you because this is really interesting. And I've always heard this, and I'm not sure if this is a myth or not, but I heard that fighter pilots are required to have absolutely perfect or even better than perfect vision. Is that, is that true?
0: Well, I've got a good story about that, actually. Um, <laughs> When I, uh, I, have, I actually, I was medically discharged at the age of 30 um, with a medical condition called ankylosing spondylitis. But that condition actually starts when you're in your, when you're in your late teens. And, it, and one of the things it does, it can cause a small issue with your eyes, which means that you, you're, you're a little bit short-sighted. But I didn't, know, I didn't know this at the time, right? So I went through my selection process. And when I uh, had my eye test, I'm, I'm fairly certain that the, the 70-year-old ophthalmologist that was doing my eye test, it was in the afternoon, was drunk because he, he reeked of whiskey and it was like, uh, like late on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so we went through all the eye tests and everything. And he said to me, he said, look, Christian, you're mildly short sighted. How badly do you want to be, be a fighter pilot? And I'm like, look, and I just got a bit teary and I'm like, this is the only thing I ever wanted to be. All I ever wanted was, was to be a fighter pilot. I didn't think I was gonna have any issue with my eyes, right? I didn't have glasses at the, at the time. Uh, and he said, look, you're very mildly, you know, short-sighted, but I'll, what I'll do, I'll sign you up as being perfectly sighted. But when you join, after you're in, make sure you get an eye test to get a pair of glasses. So right there is where purpose beats humanity and the rules, right? Right there is the confluence of luck and opportunity. Whereas if I said I didn't have strength in my conviction. And I, and I just believed the system, I would have gone, oh, right. Okay, well, that's it for me then. That's the end of my journey. So, so there for me was, and I, you know, I am I can barely see now. My glasses are like super strong, but did it affect me as a fighter pilot? No, I had my vision corrected beyond perfect. I had like, like Superman vision. Uh, so, I, you know, again, it's one of those things in life where you go, well, I didn't make the rules. Someone made the rules. It's, it's just a broad brush thing to cull the numbers. If they just said to everyone, hey, have glasses, then you can have superhuman vision. You're probably better off, but it is what it is. So, so the answer is yes, you do. Uh, I think today you're allowed to have LASIK um, vision correction before you come in. It's a bit more, bit more fluid, but yeah, at the time, 100% vision.
1: It's amazing how luck uh, comes into play with one stroke of a pen. You know, we could have not been speaking today. It's, it's amazing. Your, your life could have been completely different.
0: 100%, yeah. I don't know how my life would have turned out.
1: Wow, wow, wow. So you had to memorize 427 checklist items and you couldn't miss a yeah. single one. How did you do it? And what would you say to us mere mortals listening about our capacity to achieve, you know, these types of monumental tasks under, and not only monumental tasks, but under stressful conditions, because that takes it up a whole other level, right?
0: Yeah. I was listening to a good podcast yesterday on habits and why successful people are successful. And, and one of the key drivers to building a new habit and being successful is necessity, you know, that, that we're more motivated by necessity than we are by desire. It was necessary for me to learn those checklists to be a fighter pilot, right? I'd given a choice today, would I bother learning that? No, I wouldn't. How you learn 427 individual checklist items from one to 427, the first thing is you're given all pilots, whatever aircraft you train, train on, you're given a cardboard cockpit and it's just a cutout of the whole cockpit, what's up the front, the side panels, the roof, it's all there and you have your checklist. Most aircraft that aren't single pilot, a checklist is a challenge response, and it's something I teach all organisations, is before you do something, get someone to check and, and respond before you do it, right? So, we, so because there's no one checking what you're doing and because time is of the essence, and, and again, another saying is uh, to become a fighter pilot, is anyone can become a fighter pilot, but we need fighter pilots that we can train within this very tight window of, of time. So we would work together as a team, so there'd be like eight of us would be going through training together, or six to eight, and we'd help each other. It'd be one person, one person would hold the checklist, one person would be in the cardboard. And every night you'd go home and you'd you'd practice the cardboard, you'd practice your flow, you'd come in and you'd work with a mate and you'd do it together and you'd help each other. And over six weeks, you would literally know every switch button outcome in the entire cockpit from one to 420. It's a thick checklist too. Wow. Uh, But what it is, it's patterns and rhythm. It's patterns and rhythm, and we call them now the left to right. So they're not random, right? You start in the bottom left and you train. And and where I I talk to organisations about this is it's why you need an organisation rhythm. It's why an orchestra can play off by heart for three hours, tune after tune after tune with a conductor just keeping them in the game. It's the same way I can do one to 427 checklists, the same way I can count from one to 427 because it's a pattern. There's a rhythm to it. There's a reason for it. I need to know math. It's, it's necessary. The problem in business and in life is, is nothing's necessary. It's all choice and you can do what you want to do. And you actually, there's no joy in that. There's no joy in doing whatever you want to do. They, 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 that gets boring real quick. The journey's in learning the 1 to 427. Yeah, that's a massive sense of achievement. Like the day that you can do that is, is amazing. Then, then it just transfers into muscle memory and, and a habit, right? Then, it's, then it just becomes something you never, you never think about ever again. You just do it. And that part of your brain if you think about getting your whole as much as your life into muscle memory that you don't have to think about stuff it gives you all of this creative freedom like if you're if you're trying to figure out you know how to tie your shoes up every day you lose those minutes learning you use up more brain power than muscle memory so for the best of the best the michael jordan's the ten thousand hours of practice is to fill your brain up with with muscle memory and and it's again as a as a, as a successful entrepreneur if you're on a billion dollar business it's showing up consistency and sticking at it so more of your business is in your muscle memory so you can be more creative. I, I think that the, the mistake entrepreneurs make is they start to get too creative too soon and start to look at all the new things. And the, you know, the thing that got you into your business once you're in, all, looking at all the different niches and deciding on one, once you're in, that's your niche. It's too late. There's no getting off that freeway now and, and looking at this other side road because it's got prettier trees and better restaurants. You've got to optimize your freeway and, and get the best franchises and the, the most homogenized stuff on there to, to grow it up into something that has meaningful value.
1: Absolutely. You're spot on. It's just creating a habit. You know, Once it's a habit, then you just do it, right? It just happens. So w- yeah. what did you learn in your training? on how to thrive in disruptive environment? Because I can't imagine as a fighter pilot to have any more of a disruptive environment. I mean, that's like as disruptive as you can get. So what did, what did you learn that you can transfer over to life and the business world from your training?
0: The key concept I try and help people with is, the, is this thing called situational awareness, right? Uh, and situational awareness is knowing you know, how you fit into the world around you at any point in time. And, and we very rarely have situational awareness because we're always looking off in the future or looking in the past. We're not good at being in the moment. And, and I think whilst it's good to be in the moment, you've got to do that purposefully. And I think a lot of people confuse being in the moment as be, doing yoga and just <laughs> being. And it's important to be and have that time and you know, develop your amygdala and, and tune your brain down. I mean, the brain is a highly tuned Ferrari, 65,000 thoughts every day. That's not good. You've got to tune that down. Yep. To, to me, being in the moment... And, and having situational awareness is, is saying, where do I need to be? What's happening right now? What do I need to adjust? And that's what you learn as a fighter pilot. We've got the mission, we've got the three mission objectives. As soon as we get airborne, we're going to have stuff thrown up against us. We've got a rough idea of what that is, but it's going to be different. So we just keep going based on the plan. And the minute something's off plan, we're like, right, let's flick into. We've trained that when, when that particular threat, when that aircraft comes out of nowhere we kind of know what it's going to what, what's going to happen. We, we know there's a rough set of rules to deal with that. So we have clarity around where we want to be. We've got a rough idea and we call these things the what-ifs. When I work in businesses, everyone spends time in the what-ifs. So we, we build a perfect plan. We what-if a few key like really bad scenarios. And then when everything else happens, we can kind of deal with it, right? Uh, so situational awareness is based on what we know, making decisions. The decisions then create environments where we can now look for more information because we're not Umming and, and all of these decisions equal actions and impacts. And every time we have an action and impact, we can just make another decision. Without the action, without the impact, we find confusion. Yeah. So situational awareness is second by second where we're constantly reassessing our environment. And worst case, when our situational awareness is really low, we turn around and get out of there and, and, and give ourselves time to think. And situational awareness is this bubble and it's distance between your environment and your decision-making. And we try and maintain this distance in, in our decision-making all the time. And we know when that distance is reducing, when the world's starting to crush in on us, when we've got to make lots and lots of disjointed decisions, it's time to get away from the fight. We, need to, we call it pump out, just, just pump out. Give yourself time, rebuild the picture, focus on the big things. What the hell are we trying to achieve here? And then come back in once we've, once we've created the big picture. Uh, in business, in entrepreneurs, you know, it's that constant battle between getting in and building part of your system, building a website, building a structure, and then coming back out and going, what are we doing this for? What's the point of this again? Right, come back in. As fighter pilots, that's why we have a wingman, because one of us is in the, in the weeds, doing the job, the other one's keeping an eye on things, and then we swap over. So someone's always got the big picture. Someone's always working out the detail, working the radar, looking at, looking at the threats. I love it. So this mindset about working in the business, on the business, in the business, you've got to do that purposefully. And the minute you're you're in the business so deep, and I find this for me, it's a red flag. So I work in terms of sprints and I say to myself, Tuesday morning, I'm super intense on the website. I I know it's going to be a two week. I know there's a lot I need to do, but I'm going to absolutely for two hours smash my website and developer until I get to the point where I can't think of anything more. And then I'm going to give it to her. I'm going to leave it. And I'm gonna come back to it next Tuesday and then next Tuesday. And every Tuesday goes from two hours to one hour to 30 minutes to 20 minutes to 15 minutes. So I chunk everything up. And every you're either intensely doing something. And and then once I've done that, I go and I'm on the PlayStation or I'm out in the sun. I'm I'm done. I'm done. And then when I feel like I've on the when I feel like I've been outside or I've been lazy for too long, I'm like, okay, I'm bored of this now. I'm ready to go and be intense. And then I do another one or two hours on, on something else. And I've got I've got three things a day that I, I put intense energy into and in, in the in-betweens, I'm doing nothing or I'm, I'm emailing or talking to someone, doing the relationship stuff, having a chat, staying connected. Uh, and I think the, what people do as entrepreneurs, they make the mistake. They think that they're these awesome multitaskers and they look at me, I'm busy, I'm on the phone, I'm, I'm out there, I'm making calls, I'm I'm jumping in, I'm spuriously giving people my latest big idea on my website. You're just creating chaos, you know, that's what you're doing. You can do that for about a year and then it all, it all comes back to bite you on the ass because all you've you burned through your capital, the deals you hoped to cut co- to land didn't land, your lack of coherence in your business translates into a lack of coherence and how you explain it to other people it doesn't work, right? So, so for me, it's all about do, stop, think. Do, stop, think.
1: Mark Cuban calls these uh, entrepreneurs wantrepreneurs because it's all they do is yeah. they don't actually make anything up. But I love what you said about situational awareness. I think you're going to get a lot of uh, listeners going back to listen to that segment because it's, it's fantastic. But the, the lead to that is, you know, I'd like to speak about something that almost never happens in the business world, but it's so important for fighter pilots and that's debriefing, right? You know, the Blue Angels consider this practice as important, if not more important, as the flights that they go on. They get so specific that they debrief the march to the planes. So what is debrief for the Seven Hatters? And how do you apply it to your business and to your life?
0: If you're an entrepreneur and the only thing you learned to do was debrief, you're going to be successful. It's impossible to not be successful with debriefing, yet no one does it. So conceptually, it's the, most, it's the simplest thing on the planet. You just say, what's my result relative to where I want to be right now? What's the reason I'm getting these suboptimal results? What am I going to do about it right now? The way that uh, we talk about it is, hey, I made a mistake. I fess up. I fix it. One of the keys to w- w- when Top Gun was created, the school, what, this, the, what it was actually created to do was instill the skill of, of, co- of debriefing. The byproduct of that was all the pilots got better. It wasn't necessarily about how to fly a jet better. And the origins of that were in Vietnam. There was one squadron that was outperforming you know, 12, 13 to 1. All the other squadrons, same jets, same pilots, same training. But that particular unit was debriefing. So they took that and applied it everywhere. Now every Western Air Force in the world debriefs. The concept's easy. You're only asking those three questions, result, reason, response. Where it's hard is it's all about you and you, you being suboptimal as a human being. Fighter pilots know we're suboptimal as a human being because it's exposed every time you put a $80 million machine on your back. Like it's impossible to keep up. It's, you're not designed for that environment. So walking through the door, first mission of the day, first thing you're ever taught as a fighter pilot is, hey, you're the weakest link in the chain here. You're, the human factor is what we're trying to manage when it comes to operating these aircraft. Uh, and that's uh, that, like in business entrepreneur, that's the... You you talk about AI, machine learning, all of this stuff is just gonna highlight more and more. It's the human, it's the the decisions we make, the plans we put in place, the ideas that we have that ultimately are the inefficiency here. Debriefing is how you tighten all that up. Fail early, fail fast, that's debriefing. Experimentation, debriefing. uh, Having an attempt at something, debriefing. Every time you do something new, the debrief is where you learn about it, right? And I talk about purposeful innovation. You, You know, if you're in an industry, Let's take Kodak for example. Uh, purposeful innovation there would be: hey, we're in the we're in the business of capturing images. Digital's come along now, so let's try and let's try and come up with a plan where we can capture images using digital. Uh, they made a different decision though, which is: hey, we're Kodak. We're in the business of film, so we don't like digital because we want to we want we want to make sure that we just create and build better films. So right there was, was was a was a poor decision that was committed to for a long period of time. If you debrief that, you would go: okay, well. The objective to create better film was to sell more film. The result is film sales are going down. So we've got to debrief that why, why, why in there that you would have had a discovery point, which is like okay, clearly digital is the way ahead. Actually, it's the cameras, Kodak cameras that people want, not the film. And you could have made it. You would have made a decision right there. So as an entrepreneur, the fact that you're in a market which is innovative, so purposeful innovation is is connecting to what you do rather than just come up with some random idea that, and one of the biggest errors and mistakes I see in high performance sport and, and the teams that are the best of the best, they always connect their past to their future. They try a play based on what they've learned, not, hey, I've got a left field idea, let's try it. And in the military especially, left field ideas that have no basis in what you're already doing, always fail. And uh, Clayton Christensen, who, who's a pretty famous professor at Harvard Business School, he uh, completed a fairly seminal case study on product launches and uh, he studied 30,000 product launches and only 1,500 were successful, only 5%. Uh, there's another st- statistic out there, $2 trillion a year is wasted in software development through poor launches, products that weren't fit for purpose or launched too buggy. In software development and in the in the dev, dev space, they've got Agile, right? So the Agile manifesto that happened to be co-created by fighter pilot, John Sutherland. They're, that's the closest way of working and management tool that mimics how fighter pilots think and act, and they call it the retrospective. The problem is that's not translating outside of the dev world. So what what, uh, we we talk about in in my partnership with Afterburner, that's been doing this for 25 years around the world, uh, and and in some of the personal coaching that I do, that's the most important thing you do every day. Debriefing every day is more important than the stuff that you do, because the stuff that you do is only as relevant as what you've just learned from a debrief. And the, the, the saying we have in the Air Force is, the debrief is more important than the mission itself. That's how critical debriefing is. That's how you create situational awareness. You can debrief second to second. You can debrief week to week. It's just the size of the problem that you're solving.
1: Yeah, it's amazing because Kodak, ironically, developed the first digital camera. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they just totally lost sight. Same thing with Blockbuster, which was a movie rental studio or company in, 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 uh, in the US back in the 80s and 90s. And it's funny when you say about the software uh, and the dev world. I mean, I own a software company and I know how easy it is to get lost and just create stuff without really thinking about it. So this nameless and rankless attitude is crucial in debriefing, right? Tell us a little bit about what nameless and rankless means.
0: So So the world is political, right? There's relationships, there's complexity. You know, the fact that we can barely get our own thoughts together and understand what we want, let alone groups of people. Um, which is why we have mob mentality. It's just easy to just, well, whatever they said, whatever they said, I just agree with it. That's it. Let's less work. So nameless, what nameless and rankless means is, okay, we know that. You know, we know the, the fighter pilots are in a hierarchical organization. It's the military. We have orders. We have to do things. Uh, but that doesn't work, flying fighter jets. You know, being ordered to do something when the world around you changes so quickly just means we die. So we learn that lesson the hard way. A debrief is, a, is like a space in time. Maybe it's a... a Five minutes, half an hour, two hours, whatever, half a day. But in that environment, when we walk in the door, everyone, everyone acknowledges that we, we are here with an objective focus on our outcomes. And that's another key part of debriefing and why businesses struggle with it is because they don't have clarity in their, in their plan. They don't chunk down measurable goals on a, to each level. They have big strategic goals, but you've got to make that equal your number. So let's say you know, in a, in a, in a fighter mission, we might have to destroy four aircraft and there's four of us. So the, the overarching mission is to destroy four aircraft. My number for that is to get to Mach 1.2, pull the trigger at, at, uh, at 25 miles and be at an altitude of 36,000 feet. They're my key three numbers. That granularity doesn't happen in business. You just like kill four aircraft and, and you're, you're sitting there, you know, you don't know how to do that. <laughs> so, so you get in trouble and then you're like, well, you make excuses, right? And then no one no one really ever blames you for an external excuse and therefore what happens is we vilify our contractors our vendors our cust- it's our customers fault or it's a ve- it's never most of the time it's not it's your fault and in the customer it's the person who's inside the customer's fault you know no one goes into any of these deals trying to create a heartache it's all our interpretation or lack of expectation management so debriefing manages that too and one of the key yeah, there's, there's seven key outcomes from debriefing that cause 80 to 85% of problems in business. The number one, planning, lack of expectation management. And for an entrepreneur, that's a big one, right? Because you are always overselling to get investors To you're always making a commitment into a world that doesn't exist yet for you. So one of the skills I've, I've learned uh, there is, is to break that conversation down into three levels, and I call it the want, plan, do. Uh, what do you want as an entrepreneur? What do you plan to do in the short term? And what do you actually do? And if you, can, if you can express that story well, that's how you create stickiness. And I've had four successful businesses since being a uh, fighter pilot. And that's what I've learned is you're able to sell a bit of sizzle, a little bit of blue sky. You're able to plan a win in the next 90 days and you, you deliver on that win. And that's, the, that's how you accelerate the, the journey to being a meaningful business.
1: I can tell you, I'm gonna take a lot of this into my own business, but just for the Seven Hatters, to re- reiterate, the three questions for debriefing is, what is the result relative to where I need to be? That's question number one. Number two, what's the reason I'm not getting to my destination? That's question number two. And what am I going to do today to get closer to my goal? Is that correct?
0: Yeah. What's the action? Not the intention.
1: Got it. What's the action? That's good. I like that. Not,
0: not, not. oh, we've got to do this. We've got to do that. We've got to improve this. No, I'm going to do this tomorrow. And if you're a team, if you're an entrepreneur that has a team, every person in the debrief has to be able to make that statement. And guess what? When you debrief the next day, what you're debriefing is the result of those actions. Yeah. You're in, if, you're, if you're in a full, uh, what I call GID mindset, get it done mindset, if you're a full GID in your organization, you don't have meetings anymore. No such thing as a meeting. Your culture is debriefs and planning sessions, looking back, looking forward. You never provide an update. You're either doing your work and the job's done, or you're problem solving to figure out how to go. You're, you're never updating and saying, I did this, I did, because it's assumed that you will always do what you said you would do. And if you haven't, you've come up with a potential solution that we're going to problem solve through together. Uh, you're not a wheelbarrow, right? You're, you're, you're not just sitting there waiting for me, the, the, the leader, to push you along. We're going, to build, uh, uh, we're going to build gardeners here. Everyone can proactively make decisions in the garden.
1: I absolutely love that. You know, you say fighter pilots operate in black or white. There are no gray areas. So how does that relate to entrepreneurs? Because some might argue that there are some benefits to operating in the gray.
0: There's no benefits from operating in the gray. There's nothing but bad that comes out of the gray. Um, It's always there. Like it's 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 there unintentionally. Like that's the world, right? You you wake up. It's COVID, right? That's a big gray area. Um, it, there's nothing you can do about it. You, you wake up with a cold, that's a grey area. You, someone has an accident, twists their ankle. So there's always stuff happening that, that makes it grey. But what fighter pilots do is we immediately go through a decision-making discipline to make a decision on that, right? And we know it might not be the right one, but it's okay because as we move forward, we'll realise that, okay, we can change that decision. What people don't like is changing big decisions. You look like a bit of a fruit loop. But when you change your micro decisions, your little ones, no one really notices. Changing your mind and decisions at a micro level, that's what, that's called being adaptable. Changing decisions at a strategic level is flaky. So these small decisions that we make should still lead us to the big decision and the big purposeful outcome. So there's a nuance there, right? Gray is bouncing from one black and white to the next. Mm, uh, it's not just staying in there and going, oh, something bad happened. I'm just gonna ignore that. Or particularly as an entrepreneur, I've got this great idea there's a fear to put it out to the customer because the customer is going to say no. So you can flip that on its head a little bit and go, hey, you know, so go, I have done this product. Do you like it? No, I don't. It's like, hey, I'm experimenting with something new. I listened to what you said and you said this. I debriefed the client. I learned what the, the client's intention was, what the client's results were, what the client's reasons were for the result. And I'm the response. I'm the action now. So I'm going to come in armed with that conversation and say, I think this is going to work. Would you want to, let's give it a go rather than say, I've got, here's, here's a widget, give it a go. So situate, that situational awareness is that, is that context. And I talk about in sales and marketing teams, debriefing with clients, Yeah, you know, debrief with them. And and that is how you both not only create situational awareness for yourself, you create situational awareness for them. They walk away going, that was a really enlightening conversation. I feel a bit clearer about where I'm going and what I need to get there. You don't become valuable anymore. You become invaluable. Yeah. And that's the sort of business you want to do. I,
1: I, I absolutely love that. I, I mean, so many lessons learned from your time as a pilot that I'm, I'm going to have to listen to this a few times. But when you left the Air Force, right, you did not leave because you wanted to. You had a physical ailment, right, that, that prevented you from continuing, right? That, it wasn't a voluntary leave, correct?
0: No, it was, I was medically discharged. Yeah. So I had this, um, this problem with, um, uh, it's like an arthritic condition, ankylosing spondylitis is where your immune system gets a little bit broken and confused. It, it doesn't know the difference between healthy tissue and, un, you know, and unhealthy tissue and it, it attacks the soft tissue in your spine, your hips, all over. It's just really painful, un, uncomfortable. And flying a jet at uh, high speed and high G, it just got too painful. And I just had one, I was in England on exchange flying a different jet. And in one mission, my neck just seized up looking out the window sideways. I couldn't turn it around. Uh, so wow. I sort of had to turn my body and fly the, the jet home sideways. And that was, that was the last jet flight I ever did. Wow. Um, so, so I had to, um, yeah, I had to kind of figure out what to do next. And, and one of the challenges with being a fighter pilot is it's not a transferable skill directly. <laughs> yeah. I can't, you can't be a civilian fighter pilot, right? Uh, funnily enough, you can now. Uh, but back then you couldn't be. So, you know, I had to think about what I could do. I... I knew I wanted to get, if I was going to do something, I needed to be like the fighter pilot side of business. You know, I had to be entrepreneurial, creating my own destiny. I couldn't couldn't stand the thought of working for someone or being an airline pilot. Nothing wrong with those jobs, it just wasn't for me. So I thought, well, I bought a book, like how to start your first business for dummies or something. Again, not academic and I don't like those sort of books. I think I got to about page three or four and there was a a sentence in there or a breakout box that said, uh, if you want to start your own business, yeah, make sure you go somewhere where demand uh, will never be met by the supply because that way if you do a bad job, people <laughs> yeah. are going to buy from you anyway. So for ex-military guys, it was Afghanistan or Iraq, right, post-war, putting the places back together. Uh, again, I wasn't special services. I didn't do hell weeks. week because so Iraq was a little bit, little bit too next level for me. Uh, so I went to Afghanistan uh, with my best mate. Like, this was a team effort, wingman. Nice. Uh, Tom and I were 50-50 partners. Uh, he, was he was South African Navy diver parachute regiment officer in the British Army. And together we started this company called CTG Group, Christian Thomas Group, just two of us, right? Nice. And um, yeah, so yeah, that business was, what, what did you guys do? Well, you know, we knocked on doors and asked people what they needed and, and, and we did what they needed us to do. Uh, and that's how we grew our business. And it was a uh, humanitarian projects. We got bought out by multinational It grew into like uh, revenues at 200 million. We, we, we set up Afghanistan's first mortuary service. We got into hospitals. We helped manage the building of schools and clinics. Yeah, so it was a pretty cool, pretty cool job, and it was real raw business. You just everything was a handshake. You had to do what you had to do to get the job done.
1: Wow, that must have been an incredible success for you. So, going back to when you when you ended your career uh, as a pilot, did you because if if this was probably a low for you, did you self sabotage? Did you exhibit self destructive behaviors like some some would?
0: no i was too i was too high energy to focus nice. no i uh i guess i had the benefit that i knew i saw it coming because of the pain when it comes to making that transition in life uh, i was t- 30 um, 11 years in the military uh it was necessity there wasn't a choice right i just had to do it and again failure wasn't an option so just don't fail
1: <laughs> wow crazy uh,
0: like there's business going on right like people are doing it there's billions of dollars so, so it's, it's happening, I just got to do it. And, and I know if you just do it and you just stick with stuff and you show up, eventually it turns into something sustainable.
1: You know, Boo, I'd love to have you back um, because there's just so much that you have to share. What I'd like to do is I'd like to end and close on my interviews with, you know, with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become? to manifest your current success today?
0: My um, major, first real major life crisis was 32 when I uh, got divorced. A bunch of stuff was, was going on and my wife and I decided that was uh, enough. Yeah, um, I've you know, been away a lot, traveling all over the world, pretty high risk kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, and for me, that was the first real major fail in life for me, right? The, like the out of my control, couldn't understand it, couldn't comprehend it, couldn't get my head around it. And I invested in a year of personal development. I had a psychologist. I was introduced to a spiritual healer, which for me at that point in time, you would have thought, "What? What on earth is a spiritual healer? What's that garbage?" Yeah. Uh, but those two people had a profound effect on my life. They taught me um, really two things. One, uh, everything is ego. So if you, I, all my success was invested in me, and and who who I was, and I defined myself by the success. So learn learn to just let go of that. And uh, the second one was. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, the ability to have emotions, uh, but to logically come to a conclusion as to what's healthy and what's not, and also at the end of the day, there's things you you can't control, you'll never understand. Put them in a locker and just keep moving forward. Uh, and you do that anyway. Like you're really good with compartmentalization as a fighter pilot, but unhealthy compartmentment. It's 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 the, it's, the um, it's putting something in a box, but not dealing with the emotional side of it, not letting not letting yourself grieve and get to the end of that process and putting it in a box. It's putting it in a box without the grieving. And that, that comes to bite you back later with, with issues, of with alcohol and, 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 and other things. So, so that, that for me, and that, that allowed me to have a far more mature relationship and balanced relationship with success. It's really easy to be successful if you have absolutely nothing else in your life except that. That's never going to be sustainable success. And, and there's Plenty of stories of entrepreneurs becoming billionaires and, and exploding, and, and that's, not, that's not a win.
1: No, no, it's that's
0: deep, deep. Deep performance is deep. That's what deep performance is all about. You can't. You still got to have the high performance elements and behaviors, but that's not everything. It's part of that journey. Reflection is the missing part, and time to say no and to stop. That's that. They're, they're the missing pieces.
1: Wow, what a, what an exciting interview! I really loved it. So let the seven headers know what you're currently up to, how they can reach you, you know, what do you, what do you have to provide to them? And I'll also include it in my show notes for everybody to, uh, to check you yeah. out and geek out on you.
0: No worries, mate. Call me Boo is my, is my environment. Um, uh, I'm also the managing partner for this part of the world for Afterburner. Uh, and really for me, I'm a, I'm a team's coach and mentor. Um, I, I work virtually with uh, entrepreneurs and businesses only committed to a deep performance mindset. I'm I'm not interested in, in, uh, I can't give you a gift, I can't make your business work for you by by magic, but what I can do is optimize the way you deliver each day and enhance the people around you to unlock 400% potential. And and there's a great study, uh, 638,000 high performers that that demonstrate there's this 400% latent capability in all of us. My role is to not unlock that just in you, to unlock that in a team. Uh, and that creates, I mean, I've had some, I've worked with organizations that have grown 700% in a year, purely wow. by coaching for a full year on how to, how to implement the practice of debriefing, but more importantly, the execution of those lessons.
1: Do you, do you work with startups like really, really small teams or do you, what's your, what's your sweet spot?
0: My sweet spot is not purely startup. I'm actually launching my own startup on the 17th of January next nice. year, Congrats. Uh, which is a, um, uh, which is an app that does all this thinking for you. So mm-hmm. all you need, all it does is gives you your three things per day. Um, it's called Dash Two. Dash Two is what you call a wingman. So it's it's designed to be your wingman. This uh, um, productivity app. Love it. Uh, and it's um, yeah. So I don't I don't work. Startup is personal development. Startup is all about you. You have got to get your own shit together. You can, I can do that passively through my blogs and stuff. But I I work on on the second stage or long-established companies that have stagnated, you know, multi-million dollar businesses or a, a, a substantial transition, a dig, like digitize, digitalization, um, future, fu- anything future-focused is what I work on, which is to say, right, where are we now? Where do we want to be? What are the things we need to do over the next, in, in these 90-day cycles to get us there within 12 to 24 months?
1: Wow. I love that. Boo, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for Joining us in the seven hats, so many, so much knowledge. I appreciate you.
0: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Al. Thank you. Take care.
1: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Boo. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Situational awareness is being aware of what is happening around you in terms of where you are, where you're supposed to be, and whether anyone or anything around you is a threat to your health and safety. As Boo states, it's knowing how you fit into the world around you at any point in time. The problem that we face as entrepreneurs is that we're always looking into the future or back in our past. If we can't slow down and find the now, the present moment, we can't master situational awareness within our business and our lives. Your monkey mind is throwing out 65,000 thoughts per day And 95% of those thoughts are really the same thought you tell yourself over and over again. So as Boo reminded us, we have to tune our minds down so we can focus on the three critical questions that through Debrief, allow you to master situational awareness in your life. Every fighter pilot knows, when they debrief, they ask themselves, where do I need to be? What's happening right now? And what do I need to adjust? So let's do as Boo teaches, Debrief as if your life depended on it. Don't skimp on that lesson. It's an aha we can all take to the bank. I wanna thank Boo once again for joining us so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey And until next time, my name is Yuval Selik, and I tip my hat to you.